everybody. Hi. How are you? Yeah, whatever. All right, cool. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be here with you. If you haven't been with us uh, for long, we started a series back around Easter called Graysonomics. And Graysonomics, as you saw, is all about the study of second chances because we believe that God is a God of second chances. And a lot of us, our lives are mirror images of that idea that God is about grace and the grace restores us and renews us even when we fail. Uh, it's been a really great uh, summer already. Last weekend we celebrated Lauren Harlow's wedding here. Uh, she and Tommy Carreras were married last Sunday. Yeah, it was a good deal. And um, I was here at the wedding, and because I've done weddings before, I, of course I get a kick out of watching Tim kind of try and keep it together while he's doing his daughter's wedding sermon. But I like to watch weddings because there's just so much potential in weddings. You see them, and you see their life, and you know, wonder what their kids are going to be like. You wonder if one of the groomsmen's going to pass out because he forgets to like wobble his knees. You know, if you don't sway, you'll pass out during a wedding. It's just just common knowledge. You want to you want to see what the good things are going to happen with this uh, this union that comes together. It's a beautiful thing. However, not all weddings turn out like the one last weekend did because sometimes your planning brings in potential that you didn't think about. So when you bring in weather, when you bring in kids, when you bring in animals, whatever, it, it really brings some strange circumstances to the possibilities of what could happen in a particular wedding. And just to give you an example of what potential can actually do, here's one that went wrong. Take a look. We all have potential for beautiful things. We all have the potential for good. We all have the potential for something awesome to happen. Even the story of humanity begins with this very good picture. Adam and Eve, these two characters that we're introduced to at the beginning of the Bible, they're in this relationship with God that's indescribable. It's full of potential. Can you imagine the life that comes from that? They needed nothing else. They had everything they could possibly want. And then the dock collapsed crash into the water they went and the rest of history is God giving people a second chance and rescuing them without their own effort so that's what great synomics is about it's all about where did this potential go wrong and what happens now now I get to talk about somebody this weekend who I'm pretty excited to talk about and it's a character from the Bible named Samson now a lot of people know something about Samson but I want to give you the entire story and if you're interested in where that is found it's in the seventh book of the Bible the book of Judges it's chapters 13 through 16. Now, in order to understand Samson, you have to understand what was going on when he arrived in the world. And you can find that, a really good statement on that is Judges chapter 21. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everything, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, translate that into today's terms. It's that parents go on a two-week vacation, leave their six teenagers at home with the credit card on the table and a post-it note with the PIN number and the keys to the car right beside it. That's the scenario we're talking about here. It's free reign. It's anarchy. Do whatever you want to do. Now, when we get into Samson's story, we also find that there's this group of people called the Philistines. And the Israelites and Philistines were fierce enemies with each other. It's a Green Bay, Chicago kind of rivalry that they have within these two nations. And they're supposed to stay separate. They're not supposed to intermingle with each other or pick up each other's habits or anything like that. But at this point, Israel has just given up. They're just tired of fighting, and they start to bring in some of the practices of the Philistines. Also at this time, there is a man named Manoah and his wife, and they can't have a child. And so they begin praying, God, would you give us a child? Give us a child. And an angel appears when they pray. How cool is that? You pray, and then an angel shows up. And this is what the angel says. The angel of the Lord appeared to her, Manoah's wife, and said, You are sterile and childless. Duh. 
but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. And no razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. What an amazing thing. She goes from not having a child to suddenly having a child who's going to set everything back to right, who's going to bring hope and peace and joy to the world. So we pick, up, we pick up a few things about Samson right here at the beginning. The first thing we get is that his birth is actually a miracle. Samson's birth is a miracle. It's a gift of God out of grace given to a barren couple who can't have children on their own. But notice what else is here. We learn one other thing about him. Second thing we know is that God has specific plans for him. He plans for him to be a Nazarite. Now, what does that mean? A Nazarite, it's a vow that someone would take to say, God, I want to separate myself completely from the rest of the world just for you. Now, in the Bible, a lot of people did that just for a period of time, and then they'd come out of it. But Samson is one of the only people in history who it was his entire life's work to be a Nazarite, to be completely set apart from God for, for God for the whole of his life, and to be the deliverer of Israel. No pressure. It's like naming your kid, I'll end world hunger. It's just, how do you live up to that? The third thing we find out is that Samson was driven by God. Driven by God. Here's what the scripture says. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanatan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now the word for stir, or stir here is pa'am. Pa'am in the Hebrew simply means to drive or to impel. And if you know the story of Samson, you know what this means. It means that Samson was freakishly strong. Now the scripture never tells us that he was huge. I mean, sometimes you see pictures of Samson and he looks like, you know, Fabio with like giant biceps and stuff like that. We don't, the scripture never tells us what he looks like. All that we find out from the Bible is that he was freakishly and unbelievably strong and the Holy Spirit was dumping Red Bull into his soul. And when the moment comes when Samson needs his strength, he is strong. But other than those times, he is not. And the promise to him is that as long as you keep your vow, as long as you keep your hair, you will keep your strength. Now, if we stopped here and just didn't read any further, what would you expect of this guy? A miraculous birth, a divine purpose, the Holy Spirit dumping Red Bull into his soul. What would you expect from him? Such potential, right? You would think he's going to do amazing things for God. You would think he's going to set the world on fire and change everything. And really, truthfully, this potential that God puts in him does have a purpose. He's going to be a judge, and not a guy in a black robe who bangs a gavel, but someone who's going to come and restore Israel back to life and to health. He had a purpose for all this potential. But, as the author Charles DeLint says, everybody's got the potential for great good and great wrong in them, but it's the choices we make, the choices we make that define who we really are. All of us have this potential deep inside. We know that there are things that we've been made for, things that God has created us to do that are somewhere deep in, and we know eventually we're going to get to it, eventually it's going to happen, but it feels like something needs to break, something needs to give, and then we make decisions. We cave to certain struggles. We give in to certain things that we know we shouldn't, and the dock crashes. 
We had a great job and we wasted it with our bad habits. We had a great relationship, but we blew it because we couldn't deal with our inner demons. We had a good relationship with our kids, but we let our work get in the way. And then we look back and we say regretfully, oh, but it just had so much potential. And that's the story of Samson from then on. Now, I'm going to move through this really, really quickly. So are you ready to go with me? If you're not, it doesn't matter because I have microphones, so we're going to do this anyway. Here's what happens next in Samson's life. It's a series of and thens. First thing that happens is he kills a lion with his bare hands. Pretty cool, huh? Leaves the lion beside the road and comes back later on and sees that bees have actually invaded the lion's carcass, made a hive, and then started to produce honey. So Samson does what any of us would do, scoops it out, Winnie the Pooh style, and has a big bite of honey on the way. Well, here's a problem with that, is that if he has made this vow to be a Nazarite, he's supposed to stay away from dead bodies. Here's what the scripture says. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. So ding number one. Second thing is he marries a Philistine woman. Uh, It's a big no-no in Israel, but Samson says to his parents, get this woman for me because, in Judges 14, she's right for me. The Hebrew actually means she's so fine. Oh, she's fine. She is so fine. So get her for me and make her my wife. And so they get married. And Samson gets completely trashed at their wedding feast, just completely blitzed all over the place. And, and because he's not supposed to be drinking strong drink, that's a problem. Number six says, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. So he gets wasted at his wedding and breaks that vow. And then he makes a horrible bet with some of the wedding guests because, well, this is what we do when we're totally wasted. We make bad decisions. And he loses that bet eventually because he can't stand up to his wife. And then he loses his wife immediately because the father-in-law looks at him and says, you're not fit to marry my daughter, and he gives her away to somebody else. If you're a father-in-law right now, you can't do that. That's not legal, so don't even think about it. And then Samson goes nuts after he finds out that his wife has been given away. And what he does is he goes and he gathers 300 foxes. Now, the scripture says foxes, but it was probably more like jackals or coyotes or some kind of hunting dog. He takes 300 of them, ties their tails together, puts a torch in between them, and sets them loose in the family farm. I'm not kidding. It's in Numbers 14. Go back and read it if you don't believe me. And it destroys their entire crop and their entire family's income and the income of the rest of the village and it leads to the murder of this in-law of samson this is messed up isn't it it's like some springer episode gone really really badly and then the turning point comes the turning point comes when samson is assaulted by a group of philistines and this is what the scripture says The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and finding the jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Because that's what you do. And after that, this very odd thing happens. The scripture says Samson was thirsty. Because when you're knocking out people with the jawbone of a donkey, you're going to work yourself up a thirst. Can you imagine a Gatorade commercial for this? And this is just laying out the thousand guys with the dogma and the little green driplets of, you know, sweat coming down his face. He believes God has completely abandoned him. I can't imagine why. And so he cries out for God for water. And then the scripture says that God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, which is a rock. 
and water came out of it. And when Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. And Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Let's be clear about something. Samson's not only not living up to his potential, he's actually living against his potential. He is completely working in the opposite direction of what God has asked and created and built him to do. And yet, God is working anyway. He still uses him as a judge for 20 years. God is still working to help rescue his people because God is always working to see his kingdom come. The question is, will he be working through us or will he be working in spite of us? Yes, there is violence. Yes, there's revenge. Yes, there's all this self-centered stuff going on in Samson, but you can't get away from the fact that God is still working even as Samson is failing because God does this with weak and broken people. Paul says that God spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Yes, God uses broken people every day, but we've got to understand, Samson is not an example to be followed. He's an object lesson to learn from. Kids, do not be like this guy. That's what we should learn from his story. He's been given everything God can give him, and it's just not enough. He's chosen death and revenge and self-centeredness, and yet God is still working. Unbelievable. But then, because Samson's story is a series of but-thens, we figure out there is one thing that God cannot work through. And it all starts with a prostitute. Because we really don't start enough stories that way, do we? After God has miraculously made water spring out of a rock to take care of Samson's thirst, he feels like the best next thing to do is to go to town and find himself a prostitute. Now, I'm sure they talked about the weather or politics or whatever. They probably had a nice conversation and party company. But in any case, this was not a good idea. Really, now, Samson, after God has done something miraculous for you, you think this is the best next option? Okay. And then sometime later, after that, well, she walked into the room. If you know the story of Samson, you know who she is. Scripture says sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, because you always fall in love with those Sorek girls, whose name was Delilah. Delilah. Now, we don't know much about her, except for now she hosts this really cheesy radio show. Um... Delilah. Don't pretend you haven't listened to it. You know you have. We don't know if she was an Israelite. We don't know what her occupation was. We don't know what she did. All we know is that in Hebrew, her name means flirtatious. Be careful what you name your children. They will live up to it. And so she captures Samson's attention, and she captures him. And the Philistines notice that she has caught his eye. And so they come to her and say, listen, we'll cut you a deal. We know that Samson's fond of the lady folk, and he seems to have taken a shine to you. So why don't you find out the secret of his strength, and we will pay you for it. And then we'll take him down. And so she finds out the secret to his strength by nagging him. If you think I'm lying, here's the text. With such nagging... She prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. 
He told her everything. He gave up his potential. He gave up his strength, his secret, his vow because of nagging. The guy who killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey could not handle the nagging of one woman. (laughs) And Samson gives in because Samson was all too willing to exchange God's secret for Victoria's secret. And come on, really, is it a secret anymore? We all know what's going on there. You should just call it Victoria's store, you know? We all know what's happening. And so Delilah takes the bribe, and she has Samson's hair cut. Now, the story often that we hear is that Delilah cut Samson's hair, and you see pictures of him laying in her lap and her snipping it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Delilah has his hair cut. So she brings in someone else to cut his hair, and the Philistines dive on him. And they shave his head, just to be sure, and they poke out his eyes, and they take him as their prisoner. But he had so much potential, didn't he? And he gave it all away. At this point, I think it's fair to talk about another figure from history, this guy. That is the oddest looking Superman I've ever seen. The reason I want to talk about him right now is because the creators of Superman were two uh, Jewish men who grew up in a Jewish household. And when they were questioned as to how they came up with the idea for the Superman character, they said, well, we based it on two people from history. The first one was Hercules, the Greek hero from Greek legend. And the second one was Samson. And you can see the parallels, can't you? Superhuman strength, a mission to save the world, a set apart from their birth for something special. And there's one other, kryptonite. Because every hero has his weakness. Hercules had his weakness. Superman had his weakness. Samson has his weakness. The thing that derails Samson is not the anger, it's not the vengeance, it's not all of that self-centered stuff. The thing that betrays Samson is lust. The desire for something that's beyond what has already been given to him. It isn't unusual for anyone, and and in and of itself, it's not evil, but taken to its logical conclusion, it destroys us. Because lust isn't just about sex. We can lust for stuff. We can lust for sex. We can lust for power. We can lust for a different emotional connection. It doesn't have to be physical. It's just longing for something that we don't already have that's beyond what we've already been given. Samson gave up his secret to God's potential when he said, this is just not enough. God's greatest gifts are not enough for me. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good things to long for. There are good things to want. But so many times, lust makes us give up the great things that are in front of us for the good things that we think are out there. And it's just not true. Now, we look at Samson, and we, get, we have the privilege of looking back on him and looking at him from the outside and go, what an idiot. Miraculous birth. Mission from God. Crazy amounts of strength. Doesn't he understand where all this is coming from? But you and I started out with really great potential, too, didn't we? Because you don't look at a newborn baby and see a serial killer, do you? I hope not. Oh, goodness. No, you see doctors or writers or that two guard that the bulls so desperately need, amen? 
you see potential in them because they've got it. They have this whole life out in front of them that they are going to live into. And now we, and as we go, we know that there's, this, there's more for us. There's this deep thirst in our soul for something that is out there, something that we're longing for, something we know we're built for, but it just isn't quite clicking. And then we get to the point of realizing we've made those bad decisions and we've given up our potential. And now, well, now we need a second chance. We need the grace of God. Maybe you're here and you've been crushed by lust. Maybe you've been crushed by pornography or an emotional affair. You've been distracted by a desire and a lust for power and control in some part of your life. Maybe you've been disappointed because you found that the grass that was greener over there was greener because there was more manure to step in. Maybe that's where you are. I want you to know that Graysonomics says that it's time for a second chance for all of us. That we can rediscover our potential. So we need to discover how is it that God destroys the power of lust. How is it that we find out that God wants to just bring this potential out of us and what kills that potential is that we long for a life outside of God's desires and gifts. Rich Mullins, the songwriter, says, I'd rather fight you for what I don't really want than to take what you give that I actually need. How do we get to the place where we let God destroy the power of lust? Well, we have to understand how he does it. And here's, here's a couple things. First of all, we need to know that lust distracts. Lust distracts but God focuses. Lust brings distraction because it gets our brain headed in the wrong direction. And the rest of us just kind of follows along. Paul says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Because defeating lust is not just about don't think about those things or don't think those thoughts. It's about replace them. We've only got so much hard drive space up here. Am I right? And I get less of it every year that I get older. Fill it with something else. Replace those thoughts with something else, something that's good and something that's beautiful. And it's not to earn points with God. Graceonomics is not about us making ourselves fit for God. It's about the fact that God wants to protect us. He's saying, think on these things not so that you can earn the points to get into heaven. He's saying, think on these things because I don't want you to end up like Samson. Have you ever, those of you who have kids, have you ever watched your kid do cartwheels in the living room? And suddenly in your brain, this, this short film begins to play of, if they go the wrong direction, they're going to go through the drywall. And then I'm going to spend the afternoon in the ER instead of eating ribs like I'd like to be. I think I should stop that. When God says, think on these things and not those things, it's not because he's a tyrant and it's not because he's a prude. It's because he wants to protect us from becoming like Samson. He is a good father, and he can see you cartwheeling through the drywall. Stop now. Stop now. So we've got to get honest about our thoughts. Listen, here, let's just be honest for a second. Can we do this? Guys, we don't go to Hooters because the food is better there. Do we? We don't read Men's Journal or Maxim because the journalism is just so hard-hitting. Do we? We don't keep our exes on Facebook and keep chatting with them because there's nothing going on between us. Do we? There wasn't a multi-person line for the movie Magic Mike the other night when I went to see Brave with my daughter for no reason. Was there? 
The success of Fifty Shades of Grey is for a reason, isn't it? I'm not coming down on you. What I'm saying is there's some honesty that we need to come into because it doesn't have to be something physical. It can be something that goes on between our ears. Steve Arterburn says that we often trade physical liaisons for mental affairs and daydreams, affairs of the eyes and heart. Our minds, our brains get focused on fantasy, the what could be, instead of being focused on the what already is that God has generously given to us. We have to get our brains in the right spot. The songwriter Lauren Hill said, I'd rather, it said that fantasy is what we want, but reality is what we need. We don't need fantasy anymore. We've got goodness in front of us that God has given. Let's embrace it. If you notice something about Samson's story, he never breaks down and says, you know what, God, I blew it completely. I messed this thing up. I, I blew my potential. Because he was so engrossed in the pursuit of these other things that he wanted that he became completely and utterly blind. He was figuratively blind before he was ever literally blind. He was completely consumed with this life that was what could be rather than what already was. In Psalm 115, it describes it so well. I want to read that for you. And it talks about idols. And basically our lusts can become idols because we just chase them with everything that we have. An idol is something that we worship. This is what it says. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. That's really odd. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Did you catch that? We become like our lusts. We become unable to be satisfied. We become unable to see reality. We become unable to do anything. We become physically, mentally, and emotionally handicapped to where we can't even live without fulfilling these particular things. Lust is the ultimate distraction. It makes us priority dumb and satisfaction starved. And we can't live like that. So God focuses us. This is what Jesus says. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If I can just focus on one thing, searching for the kingdom of God, and know that everything else will come alongside of it, that's, that's huge. The lust machine runs out of gas when that's the focus of my life. Now that, that has potential. So lust distracts, and God focuses, but... The second thing is, is that lust humiliates, but God renews and restores. Samson, after he's captured, is brought into this huge temple where all the Philistines are gathered for this celebration because they captured the great Samson. And they bring him in, and he's blind, and they just kind of throw him into the middle of the circle and let him walk around. And he's stumbling over stuff, and he's, he's, he's just kind of wandering around, and they're looking at him and laughing at him and saying, Oh, look at the great Samson now. Come on, take care of us. Beat us up like you used to. Where's your donkey jawbone? And they're just jeering at him. And there's a little verse in there that if we read too quickly, we will miss it, but it has all the power and potential in the world. And this is what it says in Judges 16. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Do, do you catch that? Even after this traumatic failure of Samson, suddenly his hair begins to grow again. You see, Graysonomics does not mean everything will go back to normal after we fail. Graysonomics does not mean that the consequences of what, what we've done will go away. Graysonomics simply means your hair 
will grow back. After this humiliation, after this failure, your hair will grow back. God will restore and renew you. When we've been humiliated by pursuing our lust, God is in the business of restoring and renewing us. Matt Chandler is a preacher in Texas, and he had a relationship where he was friends with a lady, and she had gotten into some really tough times. She had a child, and and she was divorced, and she had gone through some really tough financial circumstances, and now she was engaged in an extramarital affair with a married man, and it just, her life was just getting more and more complicated. So he and some friends went over and said, you know what, why don't you go to this concert with us tonight, and I think it'll be helpful. It was actually church service, but he kind of did the bait and switch thing, you know. <laughs> this concert tonight, it'll be awesome. And so they get there, and the music is great. It's fantastic, and they sing, they, and she enjoys that part. And then the preacher gets up. He pulls out his notes. He said, all right, tonight, this is my best Texas, tonight we're going to talk about sex. And Matt says, oh, no. And he pulls out a rose. And he says, see this? See how beautiful this is? This is a human being created by God. Here, I want you all to take this. And he hands it to the first person on the row. He said, I want you to look at it. I want you to see it, see the textures and all the pieces to it. And they pass it around. And he begins to lay into every person who has ever had a moral or sexual failure in their life. He begins to shame them from the pulpit. And he says, ah, it's all fun and games. So you get herpes, isn't it, huh? And by the end of the sermon, he says, where's my rose? And he reaches down and he takes the rose up. And he says, this is, was the person that God created and God loved. And not, they're all broken now because of what they've done. Because of what they've been involved in. And he stopped and he looked around and this was his big point. He said, now who would want this? And Matt said, suddenly inside of me there rose this great righteous anger. Like I really wanted to hurt him. To punch him in the neck. And he said, it was all I could do, and it was the Holy Spirit reaching down into me that kept me from standing up and going, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. When you fail, it is Jesus who lifts you up, who renews you and restores you. Jesus wants the rose. If you've been shamed by your failures by another church, let me apologize to you on their behalf. Because they've forgotten what grace really is. That we've all been in that neighborhood. We've all been in that place. We've all needed rescue and restoration. Jesus wants the rose. Second Corinthians, oh, thanks. Wow. It's great. Paul says this in Second Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the failure that has come as a result of us pursuing more than we've been given. And he took it on so that we could have the potential that we've always had from the beginning. And he restores us, but not to that old life. He restores us to a new life. A life that says there is a spirit that will guide you. Paul says, so I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Come on, who doesn't want that? Peace, patience, goodness. That's the kind of life that Jesus restores us to. And I don't say that because it's just good preacher talk. I say that because my hair has grown back. 
in 2002, I was in seminary. And when I was a, a senior in high school, God had called me uh, to be a pastor, and which seemed to make sense because as a kid, I always liked to talk a lot and I liked the center of attention. So that's all you really need, I guess. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll do it. And so I went to Bible college and somewhere in there, the stress of the work that I was doing started to get to me. And, and in 2002 in seminary, studying to go into ministry, I realized that I had a significant problem with pornography. And it was, um, it was killing my marriage. And if I had had children at the time, it would have been killing my children. And God said, I have made you for something bigger. And look, look what's happening. And so I got some help. I found a counselor. I found some people to hold me accountable. And it's been 10 years now, and it's, I'm completely clean, which is just a testament to God. That's not me. That's all him. So when I talk about this, I'm not talking about it because the Bible says it and I have to say it. I'm talking about it because I know it's real. Because I know what lust can do. I know the power that it has and what it can take away from us and what potential it can take. And the reality is we need to pull down the curtain on this. Statistics say that one-third, one-third of pastors struggle with pornography. One-third. Statistics say that 93% of boys and 62% of girls have seen pornography online before the age of 18. Let's take the barriers down. This isn't just a guy issue. 63% of women. We've got to get honest about this. We've got to realize that it's not something that happens in a dark corner of the world. It's something that happens to real people when they get blinded and lost and lustful. And so now people are able to ask questions of me that they weren't able to ask before. I have people who search my internet history. I have people who ask me what I've been watching, what I've been thinking about. So if that's you, if you're lost in that kind of lifestyle, get some help. Get some people around you. Get vision from others that will help you through this. There are deeper levels of accountability because the reality is Gracenomics does not mean it never happened. Gracenomics means it doesn't have to happen again. And it's the grace of God that leads us through that. We have a lot of resources we can connect you with if that's what you're struggling with. But the one I would point out to you is if you have a computer in your house, you need to have this program. I'm going to put the link on the screen, x3watch.com. Uh, we use that with all of our staff. Uh, so everybody in the office has this on their computer. It emails someone when a website's accessed that's of questionable nature. Get people who will look over your shoulder and keep you from going blind if that's where you are. Because lust is going to take us down when God wants to renew and restore us. And now the end. You probably want to know how the story of Samson ends, because you remember we were talking about Samson. Well, I'm not going to tell you. It's in Judges chapter 16, and if you'd like to read it, feel free to do so. The reason I'm not mentioning it here is because I'd like to offer you a challenge instead. And the challenge is this. Judges 16 does not have a happy ending. Yes, Samson does something that accomplishes God's will, and yes, uh, everything happens the way it's supposed to, but Samson is destroyed in the process, literally and figuratively. So my challenge to you is this. Don't let your life end like Samson's does. If lust is knocking, please realize it's time to do some battle. It's time to get some other people involved. Don't walk that road. Walk away from Delilah. 
You don't have to live that way. It's an interesting story about Eskimos. Because that seems natural right now. (laughs) Eskimos have this interesting way of protecting themselves from wolves. Because they're a great danger in their communities. What they'll do is they'll take a very large hunting knife and they'll find a source of animal blood, maybe it's another animal's blood or something, and they'll dip the blade of the knife in this blood. If you have a weak stomach, this may be fun for you. And they dip the blade in this blood, and they set it outside until it freezes. And then they bring it inside, and they dip it in the blood again, and they set it outside until it freezes. And they do this over and over again until they've got about six layers of animal blood built up on the blade of this knife. And then what they'll do is take it outside and stick it, blade up, in the ground. Now this incredible sense of smell that wolves have they will smell the blood and come from miles around and they'll begin licking the knife and they'll get through the first layer and it oh that's really good and then they'll get through the second layer and oh that's really good and then before long the sharp part is exposed and they'll just keep going and before long they don't even realize that the blood that they're licking is their own as the blade cuts into their tongue and shreds it. And the next morning, an Eskimo walks out to find some dead wolves. Here's the reality. Some of us are licking the knife today. Some of us are chasing this one thing, this broken, distracted life that is not what God had in mind for us. We don't even see the sharp edge yet. We've become so blinded that we can't even function without it. And so into the middle of that story, into the middle of that scenario, Jesus steps up and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What's the burden you've been carrying? Is it the burden of constant, anxious pursuit of something more than what you've been given? Something other than God? Is it the burden of hiding that affair? Is it the burden of hiding that pornography addiction? The burden of chasing that next hire? Whatever that other thing is? Come. Come just as you are. Don't try to clean up. Don't try to shape up. Just come. Jesus is waiting, and he's saying, stop chasing after the wind. Stop licking the knife. You were born for more than this. And as you sit with him, he will hold up a very small mirror and say, huh, look at that. Your hair is growing back already. You get ready for communion right now. Ask the servers to get in their places. Look, I get it. This is heavy stuff. And, and maybe you haven't uh, been to church in a while. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been here, and you're like, wow, they're really transparent. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. But this should make sense. Because what we're about to do is, when we have communion, we're about to celebrate the fact that none of this is impossible to do. None of this is impossible to have. That that Jesus didn't promise life and life to the full and then say, good luck with that. 
that because of his body and his blood that he entered into our world. And he became human. So he understood. He understood what it would feel like for us to be tempted and tested and tried. And so when we celebrate communion, we're being reminded of the fact that because of Jesus, a new life is possible. Another world is a reality. I don't have to live my life governed by lust, driven by the things that everyone else says I should be looking for as a man or as a woman. I don't have to do that. There's more. There's more beautiful, more powerful, better, bigger, bolder. When Jesus gave his disciples this act, this communion, when he broke the bread and he poured the wine and blessed it, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you do this, remember me. So that when they did it, when we share these elements today, we might remember, Jesus, you're enough. I don't need any more than you. I've tried to have more than you, and it always seems to blow up in my face. You are enough for me today. As the trays come across, there are two cups. Take both of them out, hold them. We will all commune together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview to take communion with us. If you believe in Jesus, we welcome you to this table. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this chance to hear from the scriptures and to be taught and to be convicted and, and to have our souls sort of say, yeah, this is something you need. And Lord, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray, God, that there are some of them who just need to say, and I pray they'd say it right now, Jesus, I've been doing this thing on my own, and it has been a wreck. And I believe that you give me more. And so I want to accept you and all that comes with that today. I ask that you would forgive me for my lust, for my drives, for my sins. Wash them away. Give me that new life that you've promised. I pray, God, that someone in this room would have prayed that today. And I pray for the rest of us that you begin to remind us that you are enough. And that as we take these elements, it says, there is bigger and more than could ever be imagined. Let's grab a hold of that today. Thank you, Father, for this moment and this time. Help us to think on you. It's in your son's name we pray.